0: Two. This is part two. We're going to finish up this chapter this morning. Romans chapter two, we're covering verses 12 through 29. And the title of this morning's message is God is impartial, which is what we had last week. God is impartial, the moral man. And today is God is impartial, the religious person. Paul is leaving... No stone unturned. As we come to the realization of Romans 3.10 and 3.23, which says, None is righteous, no, not one, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The whole point of what we're going over from three weeks ago up to now is that we do not make it into heaven by anything we know, anything we do, but it's by who we know, who we put our trust in, in what he's done. And that's it, period. So we'll begin by reading in verse 12, which says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, we want to commit this time of study into your hands, Lord. Uh, there are times when we can become so religious, Lord, dutiful in our serving of you. And Lord, that we begin to believe that it is by our works that we are justified when that couldn't be further from the truth. I pray, Father, that this morning, Lord, perhaps if there's conviction that is necessary in our hearts, Lord, that we would confess that, repent of it, Father, and Lord, yield to whatever it is that the Spirit would have us be aware of and acknowledge and apply to our own lives to your glory. Let us not be those religious people that are very judgmental about others and yet feel we have no need to judge ourselves. Lord, judgment begins at the house of the Lord. We know that we are not justified by works, but we are justified by faith and the one who's done it all. And so, Father, we... Want to commit our time of study into your hands, Lord, asking for your blessing, your anointing for you to give us understanding of your word. May you bring clarity to it all, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all of God's people said, "Amen." All right, Amen. So God is impartial. The religious person, have you ever heard the uh, the term, uh, "the the proof is in the pudding." You ever heard that? Yeah, it's a it's an old saying. But it's an expression that has been used throughout the years that means that the presentation of evidence demonstrates a truth and establishes a fact or truth through testing. In other words, it's not relying on words alone, but rather words will be proven true or not by the extent to which the actions either bear witness to their genuineness or prove words are empty. Have you ever heard of trash talkers? Who talks trash here? I'll raise my hand. Anyone talk trash on the court? On the field? Oh yeah. There's those trash talkers, right? I remember one bit of advice that my mother gave me a long time ago. Because you know, as as a little kid I remember on the baseball field hearing for the first time some trash talking and I was like You know, you, you kinda like your ears perk up, your your flesh starts to rear its ugly head, the hairs on the back of your neck start to like go up on end, right? You're like, What's this guy talking about, right? And one thing that I was told, and, and I remember, I had some good coaches that <clears throat> would tell me, "Listen, show them on the field who really is the better person. Show them on the field. And and, and when you beat them, just walk away. The best way to uh, silence a trash talker is to beat them, right? Anybody know that? Is to just simply beat them, trash talkers." always talking on the court, always talking on the field. But words need to be matched up with actions. You know, James uh, wrote this in James 2.26, as a body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead." This morning we'll find out how the religious person is not exempt from proving themselves genuine or false by their actions, Everyone, every single person, we wonder who's heard, who's not heard. Well, really, what we're going to learn in a few moments is that everyone is judged justly and righteously. We'll start out with the basics of what a person knows, whether little little or much. And then we'll address the one who knows much but practices little. And finally, we'll see that God is more interested in what is in the heart of man than what he's made himself look like on the outside. The Apostle Paul has addressed the heathen who completely suppresses the truth in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. The moral man who is judgmental and thinks he has a higher moral standing than everyone else in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And this morning, Paul deals with a man who believes his religious affiliation and outward appearance will justify him before God. In verses 12 through 29. With God, words are proven with actions. And actions determine the weight of our words. And God knows the heart of man. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So three things this morning. God is just, judged on what you know. Number two, God is just, judged on what you do. And thirdly, God is just, judged on who you are. Again, I, I need to remind us all this morning what the whole point, the, the significant essential point of all of this is to understand our need to be saved from God's wrath in judgment and to repent, that it would lead us to repentance, to be humble before him. This does us no good if it just is a bunch of knowledge that we accumulate. The whole point of the Apostle Paul writing to the Romans was so that at the very beginning of this letter that they would understand their critical need, their eternal need, to consider themselves sinful and in need of God's forgiveness from their sin. You know that the the law gives the Jew no advantage? No advantage whatsoever. You know what the purpose of the law is? As you look at the law, in other words, the Word of God, you read through it. Prior to coming to Christ, what this book will do to the sinner is reveal sin. That's what it'll do. You look at it. You read it. And you have to come to the conclusion, I am in desperate need of help, mercy. I've fallen short. The whole point is to come to the understanding, acknowledgement, that we need to be saved from God's wrath and judgment and to repent and know God's grace. So God is just, judged on what you know. Again, let's read again verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires... They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. God's judgment is according to truth and according to works, and it is based on what you know. Why on works also? Why? Because, well, the works reveal or expose that which is truth on our own hearts. What we say, what we speak, our thoughts at some point manifest themselves in what we do and in what we say. Through and through, it is based on what you know. The statement in verse 12 is explained in the verses that follow up to verse 16. A person will be judged and perish according to what they know, but judgment comes to all. It does come to all. The ignorant, as well as the one who would be regarded as a biblical scholar, a theologian, to whom much has been given, much is required. As we are concerned sometimes about others, we should really be concerned about ourselves and and where we are. Because we ought to do with what we know and be consistent and genuine in our own walks with the Lord. Paul begins this portion of his addressed by stating that God will judge a person based on what they know. If they have the law, then they stand to be judged with a greater condemnation because they are accountable to do what they know to do. Those who do not have the law, well, they're exempt, right? No, they're not exempt. They're not exempt, as some people assume that, that perhaps they... They are exempt from God's judgment. I remember there was a time, and I've shared it with you, where I was out witnessing, and this guy was so angry with me. He was visibly angry with me. And he was telling me that that I shouldn't be out witnessing. Because as I give people more knowledge of who God is, and the mercy and grace that He offers to all, that that holds people accountable. And that they would be better off not knowing at all. Again, that goes back to the assumption that people who do not know will not be held accountable and not be judged. But God is a just God. And He judges righteously. No, those who do not have the law will be judged according to what they do know from what is written on their hearts. Henry Ironside said, quote, It is not that God will deal indiscriminate judgment with all men, therefore, but light given will be the standard by which they are judged. None can complain, for if one but follow the gleam, he will find light enough to guide his steps and ensure his salvation. He goes on to say, with him there is no respect respecter of pers- persons, the greater the privileges, the greater the responsibility. But where privileges are comparatively few, he regards ignorant men with no less interest and tender compassion than he does those whose outward circumstances are seemingly better. Close quote. People, no matter what, will be held responsible for what they know. Again, according to Luke twelve forty-eight, to whom much is given, much is required. From the person God has given two talents to, God does not require the same in return as the one to whom he's given five talents to. But God, nonetheless, does require the responsible use of what a person does have and what a person does know. There's no excuses, none whatsoever. Your circumstances don't excuse you. Your rejection of knowledge doesn't excuse you. Your lack of understanding. We ought to strive to understand with greater clarity, to understand how to apply that which we have come to know. Now, we need to notice here, how it says that it is the work of the law that is written on the hearts of people. It's an act of judgment that is constantly working with the conscience of a person that either accuses or excuses the person. Reject that work and one's conscience can be seared to the point where one can no longer sense the morality of the law. That's a dangerous place to be, and I've seen people get there to where they become so bitter, so hard-hearted, that they no longer sense the moving, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. No conviction whatsoever. It's as if they don't even have a conscience. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. You know, we often ask the question, because of false teachers, hopefully you identify them and stay away from them, you know what they look like, that they are these wolves in sheep's clothing that want to come in and fleece the flock. They want to take full advantage of the church. We wonder, we often wonder, how is it that some of these people can come in with such blatant lies, with such deception, and do it straight-faced as if they really truly believed in what they said, knowing the truth of God's Word. You think, surely they don't know God's Word. They, they, They can't. There's no way. They've avoided reading certain areas of Scripture, right? Tell me it's not true. That perhaps they just don't know what they're saying. No. These are the very people that have rejected the truth. That have gone to the point of having their consciences seared. To the point to where they have no conviction whatsoever. They have departed from the faith. They have devoted themselves to deceitful spirits. They have devoted themselves to the teachings of demons. And they are insincere liars whose consciences are seared. It's people who will teach about things like the Enneagram. And I I want to be very clear about this. That, that's all a philosophy. That's all a perspective that, that focuses... Does it focus on God? It doesn't. You know what that causes you to focus on? Some of you are pointing, yeah. It, it, it's not biblical. It's not spiritual. It's not beneficial. We already think too much of ourselves... The Lord tells us to love others as we love ourselves. So this whole idea of pastors standing behind the pulpit and telling people the first thing that you ought to really get straight today is that you ought to know how to love yourself is spewing these deceitful, teachings of demons. They are insincere liars whose consciences are in danger of being seared. We got to know the truth in order for it to set us free from these false teachers, these false prophets, these people who parade around like an angel of light when they're not. The person whose conscience is seared is a person who can easily teach others what is clearly in opposition to God's word and do so believing the lies they're telling to others. If this is the case, then we go back to chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. And the person who has suppressed the truth, and God eventually gives them over. To a debased mind, to a reprobate mind that can no longer discern what is evil and what is good, calling evil good and good evil. And what we have here written in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, is that God judges, no one escapes God's judgment, he is just, he's also fair. He knows all the secrets of our hearts and knows what you're willing to admit and not admit. But you will be responsible. Each and every person will be accountable for what they know. So God is just, judged on what you know. Secondly, God is just, judged on what you do. Verse 17, and this is a strong indictment here on the religious person, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. <laughs> it's it's at this moment, perhaps if Paul was in front of a, a group of Jews that, they would start clenching their teeth together. That perhaps they might start feeling the conviction come upon them. The heat rising up. The section deals with a religious person. The person who Jesus would address and confront often. These religious people know much. But their actions do not align with what they know. Are teaching others what they themselves do not practice. You could say that these are the ones who are hypocrites and blaspheming the name of God in the world. Now again, I just we just went over that no one is going to be outside of God's judgment. So be careful if you're sitting in here and you you look to the hypocrite and you say, that's why I don't believe. That's why I don't surrender to Jesus Christ. That's why I don't want to be part of the church. That's why, that's why, that's why. Be careful because Paul covered that as well. Every single person will come before the judge and we will be held accountable for what we've done with what we know. This is more for the person who perhaps is practicing hypocrisy. The one who is saying one thing but doing another. Again, it's not a time to elbow anyone. It's not a time to think about someone else. It's a time to reflect on ourselves and on our own hearts. We need to understand the culture in which this was spoken in. Because Paul specifically addresses a Jew who uses the law... Is prideful in claiming to have the favor of God, knows his will, and can identify what is excellent. He can be discerning. He can point out sin in anyone. Oh, let me let me tell you. Come to me, all who need counseling. All of you just laid all before me. I can I can tell you about all your problems. I can tell you about every way in which you fall short. This is a person who's sure they are guides to the blind, teachers to the foolish, teachers to those who are base in knowledge, and are the chief examples of knowledge and truth themselves. These are people that will proudly say, if you want to see this knowledge and truth in action, look no further. I'm standing right before you. The apostle Paul said, he acknowledged himself as being the chief of all sinners. You know, when you allow the Word of God to expose your own heart, you can't but walk away every time you spend time with them and say those very same words. I am the chief of all sinners." I am continually in desperate need of your mercy, O God. I am in desperate need of your help, your grace. Who am I? And yet, God, you are merciful toward this sinner. It is true that Jews did have the law. But because they did, they were held to a higher standard. You see, they should have been a people more righteous than the nations all around them. They should have been, right? They should have been a people more righteous than any nation around them. Now, Think about the church. You have the word. You get taught. Week in and week out. We should be a people more righteous than any people that are out in the world. Than any nation. We should not look like the world. We should be a separate people, a a peculiar people that are separated unto the Lord. But their indictment Came in verses 21 through 24, which again says, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? We need to understand the times in which Paul was addressing the people to understand what all of this means. When they say, do not steal, it is God's commandment, do not steal. You all know that it's not right to steal, right? Don't steal. And yet, did you know that the Jews were known for their thievery? In that day, they were known as thieves themselves. They were known to use every cunning device known to a lender to part his clients from their wealth. Think about that. Deceptive. Kind of, I'm going to work this out. Kind of like we would picture a, a person at a car dealership. You walk up and you're already just holding on, right? Here they come. And on the way out, you know you're going to go out to the uh, finance manager, right? They're going to sell you insurance on each piece of glass. They're going to sell you everything. By the way, you're already covered on. That's what they were known for. Can you imagine this? These are God's people that were known to be cheats, were known to... To take people's money. They were these lenders that, yeah, we'll lend you money, but it's going to be on my terms and it'll, you're going to come out. The house always wins, you know, so let's make a deal. These are Jews that would take advantage of desperate Gentiles who had no option but to put themselves in the hands of a Jewish pawnbroker who would give them pennies on the dollar, and who had no compassion on the debtor. No compassion whatsoever. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. You know, it was in verse 21 that Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy seven times or seven times seventy. But don't count because that's not the whole point. The whole point is. As many times as your brother or sister comes to you and repents and asks for forgiveness, so forgive him. But then Jesus uses this opportunity to teach something here that is of great value. Keep in mind what I just told you in regards to um, how it is that the Jews were perceived because of the reality of how they they treated their debtors. Verse 23, Jesus speaking, says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, Not even comparable to what he owed, by the way. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, having Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servant saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. From your heart, oh, what a heavy lesson, and one in which we could just specifically spend the whole morning going over. But the whole point of that is to really reveal the heartless and ungrateful debtor that these people were exposing that, that as they teach, do not steal, they themselves were stealing and they were known for. So Paul calls them out. He simply calls them out. Secondly, he says, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Do not commit adultery, yet they were known as being a lustful people. Lust was not uncommon in Israel, that which led to sexually immoral actions, including adultery and fornication. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Again, Jesus is clarifying all of this. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And it's Jesus who is speaking, saying in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27, You have heard that it was said, in other words, it was common knowledge, right, of the word of God, the law, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body uh, be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, the point of that is not that that's the way in which we settle our sinful us, right? To pluck out our eyes or to have an arm cut off. But that goes to show the severity of our sin. And if we do not repent of that sin, that it will lead, it will lead to judgment. And the person who is unrepentive will end up in the lake of fire. Period. To the person whose sin has not been judged by Christ on the cross, their sin will be judged personally in the lake of fire. There is no excuse. Judgment is for all. That's the very thing that the Apostle Paul was laying out here. Lastly, in verse 23, or I'm sorry, verse 22 says, You who abhor idols, do you rob Temples. This is interesting because as I thought about that, you know, and I looked it up and I studied it a bit bit more, I thought, you who abort, in other words, detest idols. So Paul's accusing them of robbing temples? And I thought, this can't, be, right? Of all things, this can't be true. But you know that they were known, Traffic in idols? That's like saying, well, I don't do drugs, but I just sell them. I I don't believe in the trafficking of people, of women, but I watch pornography. It'd be the same thing. I don't believe in abortions, but I'll vote for choice. I'll look the other way. Perhaps we can benefit as a society from certain things that perhaps personally I say with my mouth that I object to. Although they taught others to have disgust toward and hate the worship of idols, the Jews were known to traffic in idols. They would literally steal idols from temples and then sell them. Good money. These idols, statues, images. This is what the town clerk had in mind when he referenced Paul in Ephesus. In Acts chapter 19 verse 37 it says for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess goddesses our goddess Interesting, right? But unbelievable. Paul was exposing the hypocritical character of the Jews who were professing to detest idolatry and yet were profiting financially by selling idols to idolaters. Seems a bit dishonest, don't you think? Seems a a bit on the side of hypocrisy. Teaching one thing, but doing the very opposite. In these people, the Apostle Paul points out, these people were shaming the name of God in the world by their hypocritical actions. They were misrepresenting God. That's a danger of the Christian who professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ and yet does the same things that the world does. There's no spiritual integrity. So God is just judged on what you know. God is just judged on what you do. And finally, God is just judged on who you are. Verse 29, let's continue. For circumcision indeed is of of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his... Uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code or the letter in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the, the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Not from man, but from God. God is just. Uh, and this, by the way, is, is like the, the pinnacle of this indictment against the Jews. This is like, talk about getting to the crescendo. This, this Paul gets to the crescendo right here. Because circumcision was everything. The Jews trusted in the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision while walking carnally, being deceived themselves. You know, when was it that God said to Abraham that he was justified? Was it before the covenant of circumcision or after? Do you guys remember that? He was justified before. Thank you for those of you who are more charismatic than others. I mean, you can go ahead and just say it before or after. It was before. It was before the circumcision. And so we understand that man is justified not by anything we do outwardly, but that which is true inwardly. Very simply put, the outward act of removing the flesh is of no value if the inward heart is not circumcised itself of the flesh. It it doesn't matter what you did outwardly. It it had to be a representation of what was an inward reality. That's what it should reflect. That's why baptism. Baptism, you know it doesn't save, right? It does not save. But it is in obedience to the Lord, and so as we're obedient to the Lord, we identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it should be an inward reality. This is what it boils down to. An outward religion means nothing if there's nothing that has happened in the heart of man. Your works, like if, if you're coming just to perhaps feel good, you've given to the community and there's no genuine heart toward the Lord, then it's empty. It's of no use whatsoever. But here's the thing, is that anyone who lives by faith according to God's word, being in Christ, is a child of God. It is reality that counts with God and God's word is reality. Who you are is what matters to God. It's not the one who is born into a religious group or keeps certain rituals outwardly that is justified before God, but the one who is born again by the Spirit, who has judged his sinfulness and has subjected himself to be circumcised of the heart by the Lord, again justified by faith. In John chapter 3, Verse 1 says this. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a very religious man. He was a priest. He was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things, these signs, that you do unless God is with them. What we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And finally, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Here's another example of Jesus clarifying with a Pharisee, with a teacher of the people, what exactly it means to be born again. I want to leave you with this. Because this was a tough indictment. Jew is a contraction of Judah. You know what Judah means? It means praise. You see, what we have here in in Romans at the final verse of chapter 2 is a play on words, is what we have here by the Apostle Paul. You see, a Jew is not a Jew from man, but from God. It is not determined according to man's rituals, but by God's word and by his spirit. His praise is not from man, but from God. A person is not a child of God unless it comes from God and according to God. We are to be genuine followers of Jesus Christ. We are saved by faith. We are the recipients of God's grace. Not by works, not by what we know, not by being moral, but by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. God is just judged on what you know. God is just judged on what you do. And God is just judged on who you are. Again, what we learn is that God is impartial. Just as God is impartial in his judgment to wrath, so God is impartial in his grace to those who believe. And act, respond according to faith. But we know that act and respond you must. To not respond is to respond. It is to reject. To leave for another day is to reject today that which we know to be true. I pray that every single one of you, that you have at some point, perhaps up to today and this morning, all by itself, have realized that your sin has separated you from the Father. That it is only by His grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, that you know salvation, the forgiveness of our sins. A reconciliation unto the Father. And that you would respond to that this morning. Repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. For Romans 10.13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I'll leave just as I left you last week. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Father, we... Thank you once more for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And Lord, we thank you for a moment of exposing, Lord, that which is abhorrent to you. It is blasphemy. Lord, to profess one thing and be another, especially as it pertains to the child of God. Lord, we must be consistent. We must be genuine in heart. For what pleases you is the expression of our faith. And that is the obedience of the word of God. And a willful yielding to your word. Lord, I pray that you would. You would cause people to turn today to you. By your kindness. Lord, as, as your word goes out, you stand in expectation. Oh Lord, you, you stand with your arms wide open. I know desiring for the sinner to turn, to embrace you as you embrace him. Father, I pray that the heart is broken today that we do not put off to tomorrow what we are called to respond to today. Tomorrow is not promised to anyone. We know that, Lord. The time is short. And so I ask, Lord, that you would move in our hearts, that you would draw us unto yourself by the love that you have for us, by the kindness, the goodness, Lord, the patience that you've demonstrated to us. That today would be a day of reckoning. That as our sins are brought to the surface, Lord, that we would confess those to you, repent of them and ask for your forgiveness. And if we do not know you, Lord, as Savior, that today we would cry out to you and ask you, Jesus, to be Lord and Savior. May no one walk out of here not completely having been surrendered to you. We thank you for your love. And we pray this all in Jesus' name.